0: The
1: following podcast contains explicit language.
0: It's Friday, April 3rd, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Do we have a deal? It seems we do. A historic breakthrough. The Idaho wiener dog race will continue. The rescue club, the Greyhound Rescue Club of Idaho, was asking that the Lions Club discontinue their wiener dog races but it seems we have the outlines of a scaffold, of a framework, of an inkling of an idea. So that's, no, no, come on, now I'm talking about Iran, the Iranians, the Iranian deal, and the details, I mean, wow, let me tell you, here here are some of the details. Iran will not use IR-2, IR-4, IR-5, IR-6, or IR-8 centrifuge models via their agreement with the P5-plus-1. Iran will abide by the enrichment R&D plan submitted to the IAEA and pursuant to the JCPOA. So there you go. There you have it. And that, that amount of detail was enough to get people like Mark Kirk of Illinois to say of the agreement, Neville Chamberlain got a better deal from Adolf Hitler drawing upon what, judging from every single critique of diplomacy, is the only event in world history that ever happened. Well, let's see, what do we compare this to? Well, there was that time Chamberlain appeased Hitler. Yeah, that's the one thing that ever happened. By the way, Neville Chamberlain, an excellent Minister of Health. A lot of reforms before he even became Prime Minister. Decent Chancellor of the Exchequer. But do we ever remember what he did as Minister of Health, right? It's like the Donner Party. Went on to be f- fine agriculturalists. You eat a couple people, that's all anyone ever talks about. On the show today, well, it's a special show. In some ways, I guess you could call it a show that's already aired. Except we're a podcast, we don't really air. What we're going to do is play a couple of segments If you're checking out the show, maybe you heard Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which it's Friday as I speak to you. We record that thing in front of a live studio audience on Thursday. It was a lot of fun. It went very well. PJ O'Rourke and Paula Poundstone and Adam Felber, they were extremely funny and great to work with, as is the staff of the show. Didn't exactly have time to do an entirely new show, but I wanted to play you some great stuff that happened on past shows. So enjoy. Bill Browder is a man who tangled directly with Vladimir Putin. And while he lived to tell about it, that is not true of all of his associates. His story takes him from the status of a brilliant, rich Westerner investing in the newly opened Russian markets to a wanted man hunted down by thugs with ties to the Kremlin. The book is Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. Bill Browder is the man. Hello, thanks for coming by.
1: Hi, glad to be here.
0: So one man's fight for justice. You were thrust into that position, but you went to Russia, not as someone without ideals, but as a capitalist looking to make money. And that's what the time lent itself to.
1: I went to Russia for a strange reason. I I come from an unusual American family. My grandfather, Earl Browder, was the general secretary of the American Communist Party in the 1930s and 40s, ran for president on the communist ticket, was eventually kicked out of the Communist Party by Stalin. Persecuted as a communist by McCarthy,
0: even that, like Stalin doesn't like you, not good enough for McCarthy, and FDR no, was no fan of him either, right, Jailed him. So
1: he put him. My, he yeah. put my grandfather in jail yeah. um, in 1940 for passport violations. and um, tried to deport my grandmother, who at the time had breast cancer. Um, I had this legacy of of communism in my family, but and also it's, a
0: legacy of world
1: superpowers targeting the Browders. Indeed. <laughs> so, so my my grandfather, if if the, if he had been living in any other country, he would have been assassinated by Stalin. So. This was my family history, my legacy. And I was going through my teenage rebellion, I was living on the south side of Chicago, and I thought, what's the best way that I could rebel from a family of communists? And uh, I came up with this great idea of putting a suit and tie on and becoming a capitalist. The Alex P. Keaton method, yes. There's no better way to piss off my family than that. And so you work for, eventually, Solomon Brothers. So um, fast forward a number of years, I'm in London working for Solomon Brothers. It was the beginning of the Russian privatization program. They decided that to go from communism to capitalism, the best way they could do that would be to give everything away for free. And so they created this um, voucher privatization program where where you could basically buy vouchers and then buy, buy shares of Russian companies. And I did the math. And I figured out that these companies traded at a 99.7% discount to Western comparable companies.
0: Right. So BP, the the Russian version of BP or the Russian version of a huge oil company was trading for one-third of one percent of what it should
1: be. One-third yeah. of one cent on the dollar. Yeah. Yeah. And so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that, that you know, maybe that's an interesting investment. And that's called a buying opportunity. Um, that was called a buying opportunity. Now, now, interestingly, at the time that I was seeing this, Everyone thought I was crazy. They thought, "What are you talking about? That's Russia." And I said, "It it may be Russia, but it's trading at less than one cent on the dollar." I said, "All all it has to do is go from horrible to bad, yeah, and then you make ten times your money, right?" Now that's a bet that I would make every day of the week, Mm -hmm. and I did. Yeah, and I I did, and nobody else did. And so I, uh, I eventually quit Solomon. I moved to Moscow, and I set up something called the Hermitage Fund and we started out and it just went went like gangbusters and we eventually became the largest investment fund in Russia. So this is like 95, 96. It started in 96. Yeah. And um and we started before the elections in 96 when Yeltsin was running against a communist candidate and and the communists said he would he would renationalize everything if he became president. And so everyone was scared. And then Yeltsin won and the market doubled and doubled again and doubled again and just kept on doubling. And so we made a lot of money for our investors. Was it on the track to becoming a
0: legitimate place to do business where contracts maybe would be enforced, where there'd be an actual stock market and not, you know, wheelbarrows of uh, vouchers?
1: No, no, No. it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, during the Yeltsin era, um, there was a group of people they called, they're called the oligarchs and 22 guys who basically hijacked the whole place for themselves and took 40% of the economy. And left the other 145 million Russians living in destitute poverty professors had to become taxi drivers to, to earn a living nurses prostituted themselves art was being sold off the walls of art museums it was chaos and terrible it wasn't anything that resembled goodness truth yeah Democracy. So this is, and this is the climate to which
0: uh, Vladimir Putin
1: walks in. So Putin walks in yeah. and he says, I'm going to restore order. Mm-hmm. Which never, is good for you, good for investors. Good for me, good yep. for investors, good for Russians, yep. assuming it's true. Mm-hmm. And he started restoring order and I was cheering him on and saying, wow, Vladimir Putin's a good guy.
0: Now, I'm going to swoop in here for a second, interrupt our guest, Bill Browder, and help summarize a few things that happened next in the story. Bill started working to make the cheap Russian companies he's invested in more legit. He used research, he used media, he exposed corruption. And this worked well with Putin, who at the time was interested in stopping asset theft. But then things changed. Putin found a way to make the oligarchs profitable to him personally, to pay fealty and literal money to him. Putin grows richer. The work Browder doing was no longer exposing Putin's enemies. Now it's exposing his friends. So guess what? Getting rid of Browder becomes a Putin priority. Okay, now back to Bill. Nine years after he founded Hermitage in Russia.
1: And on November 13th, 2005, I was flying back to Moscow. I had been living there 10 years at this point. I was the largest foreign investor in their country. I had $4.5 billion invested in Russia. They stopped me at the VIP lounge at Sheremetyevo 2 airport, the main Moscow airport. Four guards grabbed me, and they put me in the detention center of the airport. They kept me there for 15 hours. I didn't know whether they were going to send me to Siberia or deport me. And then finally in the morning at 11 a.m., they, they grabbed me very quickly, frog-marched me to um, a, a waiting Airflot flight, put me on the plane and deported me to London.
0: Because you're a British
1: citizen. I'm a British yeah. citizen. Yeah. And, they, and they declared me a threat to national security, never mm-hmm. to return to Russia again. What happened to your assets? Well, um, so the, the one thing I can tell you about the Russian uh, system and Putin and his regime is they're extremely evil but they're extremely incompetent at executing their evil. It seems weird, yeah. They're just really bad at getting stuff done because they have C students from D universities with no real motivation doing all the implementation of all these dirty schemes they have. So we actually had 18 months to liquidate all of our assets. We did. I I sold every last penny I had in Russia and got it all out of the country safely so our clients didn't have their money seized. I evacuated all of my employees, I had a sort of skeleton staff of a secretary sitting in an empty office in case one day they, they lifted their fatwa on yeah. me. And I started getting on with other things, saying I'm I'm done with, with Russia. Only Russia wasn't done with me. 18 months later, uh, June 4th, 2007, I get a call from the, our lone secretary in the Moscow office saying there's 25 police officers here with a search warrant. They want to raid the office. They turned the office upside down completely destroyed it and twenty five more officers raided the office of, of an American law firm that I used out there called mm-hmm. Firestone Duncan. And they turned that office over and that, that office had all the documents, the stamps, seals, and certificates for the investment holding companies through which we had invested, which were empty at this point. And those documents were seized. And the next thing we knew, we we no longer owned our investment holding companies. The companies that we invested our money through had all been using the documents seized by the police had been fraudulently re-registered into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by really? the police huh. to put his name on these documents. Yeah. So here's this guy, this murderer with, his, with owning, owning our companies. Now, the companies were empty, but we didn't know what was going on and we hired a bunch of lawyers to help us, including a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. He A lawyer who worked for an American law firm. He was the head of their tax practice. Mm-hmm. 35 years old, extremely competent guy. You know there's always like one of these people in every sort of organization, you know, like so, he can do 10 things in the in the time it takes everyone to do one. Yeah. He um he was the smartest lawyer we knew in Russia. And to make a long story short, his investigation led to this unbelievable discovery, which was that the police and a group of other criminals and other Russian officials and originally intended to steal all of our assets and they discovered very quickly that there were no assets there. And so they went on to plan B or maybe maybe it was plan double plan A, which was if we had no assets, they wanted to steal the taxes that we paid the previous year because they were the owner of our shell Mm -hmm. investment companies. And those companies had paid $230 million of taxes the previous year when we were liquidating all of our holdings. This group of criminals stole all the taxes we paid, not from us, but from the Russian government. And Sergey discovered this. And we were all just amazed and shocked because we couldn't believe that you know it's one thing to steal from other people but to steal from the government that couldn't how could that have been sanctioned and we thought if we just put it out into the open if we filed a bunch of criminal complaints if we publicized it that that these rogue officers would be caught and punished by putin because he shouldn't have be allowing this kind of stuff to happen and so we did and that was naive and we, we were waiting for the good guys to get the bad yeah. guys there were, there were no good guys but in
0: 2007 you didn't you didn't smell that out i mean you're this good investor you the, the, understand the, how things work you're wise enough
1: to liquidate and
0: take your money away me, you've let, already been kicked out of the country once you know there're thugs who are running the show
1: let me tell you yeah. there wasn't a i have a lot of smart people around me a lot of very smart people there was not a single smart person around me who could have imagined that the place was as cynical and twisted as we found it to be. He's just taking the tax dollars for himself. He's taking everything, 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 and and every different type of scam. And we happened into this very much unintentionally. We were victimized by this, but when we were, we exposed it. At this point, we had seven lawyers working for us. They opened criminal cases against every one of our lawyers. I, I thought evacuating my staff was enough, but all of a sudden I was in this situation where I had to evacuate my lawyers. And I go to these guys, and I say, guys, you need to leave. And, and it wasn't an easy conversation to have with any of them. And most of them didn't want to go, but eventually, one by one, they left, with one exception. Yeah. And that was Sergei Magnitsky. And I begged him to go. My team begged him to go. Um, but he said, no, I've not done anything wrong. And we said, no, but it doesn't matter whether you do anything mm-hmm. wrong. They'll still arrest you. And he said, no, the law will protect me. He had this belief in the law. And he said, besides, these people have committed a crime against my country, and I want to prosecute them for that crime. And so he stayed and he gave testimony against the police officers who were present at the raid because it was obvious that they were connected to the misuse of all these documents. Mm-hmm. One month after his testimony, um, at eight in the morning on in November 24th, 2008, um, he was arrested by, the same, uh, by, by three, three subordinates of one of the officers he testified against. He was arrested in front of his wife and two children, taken to the police station and put in pretrial detention. Once he was in detention, they started to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in Moscow in December. He nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no um, toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. And after uh, six months of this his health started to really go into a downward spiral, and he, um, he lost 40 pounds. Uh, he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and having, had really severe pains in his stomach. And he was due to have an operation on, this, on the 1st of August 2009. Roughly a week before the operation, uh, they came to him and said, if you sign a confession saying you stole the $230 million and you, and you did it at instruction of me, Bill Browder, your, your conditions will improve. And he said, no. And, you know, no one really knows what what they would do when they're under such duress. I don't mm-hmm. think Sergei could have predicted how he would behave. I don't know how I'd behave. I don't think anyone really knows. But Sergei thought to himself, this is more, it would be more painful and more horrible to um, perjure myself than it would be to experience all this pain. Yeah, And that's just an incredible thing. I mean, for somebody to place their ideals above their physical Above physical pain you know it's, it's, it's the stuff that, you know Bibles are written on, on this stuff and Sergei turned them down and a, as a result they, they moved him from a prison that had a medical facility to a prison uh, called Butyrka maximum security prison in Moscow a medieval prison it's, it's one of the worst prisons in Russia and very significantly for Sergei Butirka has no medical facilities and at Butyrka um, his health completely broke down um, he went into constant, agonizing, ear-piercing pain. And anyone who's ever had gallstones or kidney stones or anything like that will know that, that this is one of these things that, if you know, if you have it, you know, you're at the emergency room a couple hours later, mm-hmm. and they give you morphine, and then they... Uh, and, you know, he had it untreated for four months. And they refused him all medical attention. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different requests for medical attention, and every single one of his requests was either rejected or ignored. And finally... After four months of this, his body gave out. Uh, He went into critical condition on the night of November 16th, 2009. At that point, the Butyrka prison officials decided to send him over to another prison that had an emergency room, so they sent him over, and when he arrived there, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell, chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him for one hour and 18 minutes until he died. He was 37 years old. And so
0: what does his death do for Putin strategically? Is it just revenge for you? Is it a signal? What is it?
1: I think that, that it was a couple things. One is that um, they wanted to um, shut him up because he was saying exactly what they didn't want him to say. So, you know, there's a, there's a saying from Stalin, no person, no problem. And that's what they did to Sergei Magnitsky.
0: After Sergei's death, Browder convinced the United States government to freeze assets to suspend the visas of those Russian torturers. Putin retaliated by banning the adoption of Russian orphans, if you remember that story. And Putin put Sergei Magnitsky on trial in 2013. So this, historically, is the first time a dead person has been tried in Europe since the year 800-something, when they did it to a former pope. Anyway, they also have a TV show in Russia. It is called The Browder List. It's a primetime show. It's propaganda blaming Browder for devaluing the ruble, for stealing money, and for murdering his former friend. They say Browder is a CIA agent and an MI6 agent. Putin is being tactical because he knows that if he picks certain prosecutions, one or two high-profile examples like Pussy Riot or Kordakovsky. Then he will wield his power not with gulags, but with symbolism and through the media.
1: Putin has this incapacity to back down. No matter how, whatever mistake he's making, he never can can admit fault or guilt or make a compromise.
0: So, what is the sentence now? If you ever make the horrible mistake of uh, taking a trip to Russia, what sentence is on your head?
1: Well, in in reality, it's a death sentence because um, I mean, I'm, I'm sen- I, I've been convicted and sentenced to nine years. In a prison camp, but um, that's not the reason why they want to get me back there. They want to, they want to put me to death, like they did Sergey.
0: Do you think Vladimir Putin's the most dangerous man in the world?
1: There's no question because he's he's a he's a kleptocrat, he's a criminal, and he's got. He's different than mafia criminals. He runs a state with with nuclear weapons. How could there be somebody less dangerous than that? I mean, he's the most. We we are in the most difficult moment in in the history of the last fifty years, and I don't think most people realize it.
0: Bill Browder, author of Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Now, this was going into an NFL playoff weekend, and at issue wasn't just what the Patriots were going to do to the Ravens. It's what the Patriots' tight end, Rob Gronkowski, was going to do to literature, Because an Amazon single had just come out and was burning up, if not the Amazon charts, then a lot of media. It was called A Gronking to Remember. It was an erotic story regarding Rob Gronkowski. Playing on that theme, we then introduced just listeners to other NFL erotica. Well, Lacey Noonan's book has gotten a lot of attention. Rightly so. I hear it was shortlisted for the Mante Teo Von Booker Prize. But do you think that's it? Do you think that they're going to have such a successful book as a Gronking to remember and just stop there? No, they are not. There is to be a new series of other NFL erotica. And here, right here, right now, on The Gist, we have trailers for three of these new titles. So dim the lights, pour some Chablis, lean back, and luxuriate in the newest offerings as we step inside the publishing house known as the Gridiron Boudoir. Lysander Stonepipe had but one love. She was Milena Chastington. But Milena's heart was with another. And his name was... Fozzie Whitaker, touchdown! The Scoundrel's Flame, The Fozzie Whitaker Story. And then there's this one. Could any woman tame him? Would any woman know the enveloping embrace of his 50-50 polycotton blend. New from the tender smash-mouth imprint of gridiron boudoir books, comes the story of a forbidden romance between a seasoned career woman who had sworn off all impulse and a gray hooded sweatshirt that rocked her world while staying under the salary cap. The hoodies touch. His press conferences were terse. That's, That's really about it. But his touch was tender. Yeah, well, that's absolutely not true. Delilah McKenzie craved order and predictability until Bill Belichick's sweatshirt overloaded the zone and put seven players in the box that was her heart. He tampered with her defenses and destroyed the tapes that would prove it. Embers of desire grew into flames of passion and into a conflagration that no one had ever seen.
1: Like, that's not an unprecedented situation.
0: Maybe not but one woman trembled at the hoodie's touch. Doesn't get any better than that. And then finally, Ella Eau Claire played it safe. She drove a safe car, resided in a safe neighborhood, lived a safe life. But all that would change the day she risked it all, the day she placed a simple yellow piece of foam atop her flowing tresses.
1: Green Bay, Green Bay. Rapture. rapture,
0: and soon offensive lineman Brian Bulaga was hers.
1: Wisconsin, Wisconsin Desire. He was a guard
0: who pulled the strings of her heart and awoke a passion in her she never knew. He was insatiable. She matched his every desire. They would make love on the heath, by the riverbank. In fact, you could shoot him and put him up on that open, but mount him up in your den the size of that head. People questioned their love. People questioned her passion. People question his arm length. It's only about 33 inches. And in Robert Gallery took the line. But there would be no question of the lineman's lusts. These and other titles from the gridiron boudoir are available wherever scented candles and three bean dip are sold. And that's it for today's show. No one could tame just producer Andrea Salenzi, they could only stoke her Pro Tools passion. Joel Meyer is managing producer of Slate Podcasts, but no one could manage his wanton cravings. Andy Bowers was always seen as executive producer of Slate Podcasts, but on weekends, he was known as the Scarlet Imposter. You can go to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast. You could sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash email. We are available through the app Yo. Download that app and then sign up for podcast. We're on facebook.com podcast. Be you the podcaster's harlot, the shameless downloader, or an audio-on-demand ecstasy seeker who has read all 168 books in the Strangers Kvetch series. Thank you for sharing in my dark desires we are a community we who know the forbidden path of the 1.5 speed button i release you from my tender embrace and thank you for listening
1: Hey, y'all, it's about time for our national conversation about conversations about race, a new bi weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, won't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre, post, yet still very racial America. You can say all that or just call the show About Race. I'll be in the studio from Los Angeles, and I'm Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black, with my lovely co-host Raquel Cepeda, author of Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina, and Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. Yes, it's an integrated podcast about race. A black man, a white man, and a Latina woman walk into a podcast and talk about it at itunes.com slash panoply.